Welcome to another edition of the Grazia Life Advice Podcast, where we get six life tips every week from a brilliant woman. This time, the author and behavioural scientist behind the book's motherhood and wish we knew what to say, talking with children about race. And so much more. I'm Pragya Agarwal. I am currently visiting professor of inequities and social injustice at Loughborough University. And I'm also the founder and director of a research think tank called the 50% Project, which uh, looks at gender inequities around the globe. I'm an author. I'm the author of Sway, Unraveling Unconscious Bias, which was followed by another book last year called Wish We Knew What to Say, Talking with Children About Race. And my most recent book, Motherhood, Otherhood, on the choices of being a woman, just came out uh, in June with Canon Gate. It's quite the CV and she's not even mentioned her campaigning work or her TEDx appearances. The chat coming up is so, so interesting. We get into body image issues. This is a body that I am gifted with, so I need to be rejoicing in it rather than focusing on what's not ideal about my body. And I think sometimes people around us also give us these messages around whether we are too dark, whether we're too short, whether certain clothes don't look good on us. We also take in how the value judgments of people around us can affect life's biggest decisions. We are stigmatized for choosing careers over children or that women are penalized in, in career paths if they have children or if they have mm. families. Our societal structures have to be changed to allow these freedom, these choices to occur without these expectations and pressures. And given what we've heard already from Pragya, you might not be surprised to learn she's no fan of Love Island. So if women, young people see these things of Love Love Island about what's attractive to men, not being fiery as Mm -hmm. a code word or not being too outspoken, then they will internalize it and they will believe that to be attractive to the opposite sex, you have to be a certain way. There's lots to take on board this time from a real expert in her field. Let's get into it. Here's Dr. Pragya Agarwal. Hi Pragya, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you, Rihanna? Yeah, good, thank you. I'm really excited to talk to you. The listeners will have heard you've got an incredibly impressive CV. So I'm really excited to get on to your advice. But before we do, I want to just talk about your book, Sway, Unraveling Unconscious Bias. So the book's been out for a little while and it's just come out in paperback as well. So before we start talking, could you tell me a little bit about that book specifically and what you hope to achieve with it? Yes, um, thank you. So Sway came out last year in hardback with Bloomsbury and and what I wanted to do with the book is to create this kind of non-judgmental space where I talk about unconscious bias. We've mm-hmm. been listening about unconscious bias as a term in business, but also from politicians. And it was slowly becoming a buzzword when I started writing it in 2019, early 2019. And I wanted to bring the science of unconscious bias in it. Why is it? forming in a brain? What happens in a brain when it happens? Is there an evolutionary basis to it? And how does it manifest in different forms? Mm-hmm. But what is the what is the problem with having these biases? How is it linked to systemic and structural bias? What can we do about it? And I wanted to bring all the different disciplinary research in it in, a, in an accessible manner to talk about it so that we understand it more and we can try and reflect on our own biases as well while reading the book. Yeah, that's so important now, especially at the moment. And Mm. 
just to to note your behavior on data scientist as well as being a freelance journalist so you've got the science in there it's also your personal experiences it's also kind of like case studies mm-hmm. so it's kind of trying to bring it all together into a readable format why do you it sounds obvious but I'm um, you know you're the expert so I'll ask you why do you think it is important that we're assessing our privileges at the moment specifically I think what we've seen in the last year is that so much of our place in the world and how things impact us depends on what our privileges is, what power we hold in society. And we talked about the pandemic and we talked about the lockdown, mm-hmm. that it affected all of us, but it affected people more who didn't have such a privileged position. So all, some of us were protected by our privileges we maybe during the lockdown had gardens or we even like simply speaking didn't have to go out to work we could work from home while there were people who were working from frontline who had to go out to work and put themselves in danger who were more who lived in small flats or apartments or one room big family sharing that that means that the virus was not affecting equally everybody and so this notion of privilege became even more we were becoming more aware of our privilege in in society and how we were protected by our privileges. Mm. Um, So I think it becomes so essential to think about how a difference between women and men, for instance, that women, we saw from a number of research articles that women were carrying more of the emotional and mental load at home. Mm. And so a lot of women academics couldn't publish papers, couldn't write, couldn't do research because they were looking after children at the same time homeschooling them. So there were these different intersecting layers of privileges that have affected us differently. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about the book is about unraveling the unconscious bias. That sounds difficult. I mean, in, in, in even in its own terms, it's unconscious, right? So how obviously the whole book is around that, but, you know, loosely, how do we start to address those biases that we have? I think it is unconscious, but often we are aware of it in a in a kind of a subconscious manner that we mm. are our decisions and our actions are affected by it. What we can do is to first of all talk honestly about it, to be aware and acknowledge that all of us carry biases. It's yeah. not just the bigoted people that we sometimes think that they carry that they're racist or sexist. And we become very defensive about when we talk mm. about biases. We all like to believe we are very fair-minded and we're very egalitarian. But all of us have these biases. And some of these biases are important for us in terms of processing information. But some of these stereotypes, because of the way we interact with the world, are negative because we homogenize people. And it's mm. easy for our brains to do, to say that all women act in a certain way or all men act in a certain way or all people of color act in a certain way, and we group people in these categories. But once we become aware that we are doing that, that means that we are more aware of how we are treating people or how we are making assumptions about people as well. So I think it has to be a consistent, regular thing that we reflect on how our biases are affecting our actions. Are we crossing the road when we see somebody coming towards us because of their their gender or because of their skin color Mm -hmm. and all these kind of decisions that we're taking. So yes, I think not homogenizing people, not stereotyping people. So I think these are some of the things we can start off with. I think that's amazing. I would love to move into your advice because I I want to also talk to you about your other books that you've written, but they, they kind of fall into the piece of advice, obviously, naturally that you've given us. And your first piece of advice, I think, is just brilliant. It's to fall in love with your body and learn to listen to it. You say this is something you've 
only yourself been able to do as you've got older. Can you talk to me about that and how that's manifested in your life? I think when we grow up, we have certain notions of what um, a woman's body should look like, what our body should look like. We see images um, around us. We see people around us which has held as norms mm. and we try and conform to it. And we are always very hard on us and we judge ourselves through the lumps and the bumps and the lines that we have on our body. And we try and think, oh, actually, our bodies are not conforming to these norms of beauty or idealized notions of beauty that we mm. have. And I think as you grow, I've grown older, I've become more comfortable. I mean, I think it's still a work in progress, but I think I'm more comfortable about these are the things I've inherited. These are the things I pass on to my children. These are the positive aspects of my body, my brain, my my hands that can do things. Mm. And this is a body that I am gifted with. So I need to be rejoicing in it rather than focusing on what's not ideal about my body. And I think sometimes people around us also give us these messages around whether we are too dark, whether we're too short, whether certain clothes don't look good on us. But I think we just have to look at the uniqueness of our bodies, that we are all unique. We are all unique individuals. We Again, we don't have to conform to it. And I think sometimes it's not a gender-specific thing, but I think women are more susceptible to it, these mm-hmm. things. We do get judged more and evaluated more according to our bodies. Our bodies are monitored more. And I think as I've grown older, I am becoming more comfortable because I think I also want to pass on these kind of messages of confidence and rejoicing in the body to my children. And sometimes when we internalize these, even if I'm giving them message verbally that you need to be confident about your body, it's okay what you look like, you should be happy they can pick up on implicit words and actions if I am not doing it myself. Yeah. So it's as important to like, you know, do as I do, not just do as I say type thing, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And I loved in the correspondence we had as well, you mentioned, you know, beyond the the physical and what things look like, I should say more, Mm -hmm. it's about knowing your body and what it can do. And I think it's hard sometimes when you see people being, you know, super mums or, Mm -hmm. you know, side hustlers or, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes we need to know some people just need a bit more rest. Some people thrive off pressure. You know, our our bodies are, are unique in that way too, aren't they? Absolutely. I think we as mothers, as women, we put so much pressure on ourselves and we try and conform to the, these models that we see around us about mm. advice that's given to us, as for instance, as well. And we try and create this notion or myth of this super moms, as you said, super mother that I don't need any help. And I think I tried, I conform to that as well. When I was a young single parent, I wanted to show and believe that I can do everything my professional and personal life and be a super mother and be present everywhere without asking for help. But I think, yes, I become more aware of the limitations of my body, the strengths, but also limitations. And if I carry chronic illnesses, I'm okay with saying, actually, today I cannot work. I'm going to lie down. And okay, it's my privilege that I can do that because I'm a freelancer and I can work from home. And some people might not have the luxury, but yes, asking my husband for help if I need it. It's okay if children are watching a little bit more TV because I'm actually not able to do a lot of activities with them. And I think it all balances out. It's about self-care, but it's also about saying, today is enough. Today, I'm just not feeling up to it. And it's not a sign of weakness. Actually, it takes a lot of courage to be able to say that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Anyone who's ever had to do that and say to yeah. somebody, I'm not doing it today, mm-hmm. knows how hard that can yeah. feel. It does lead really neatly into your your next piece of advice, which is it is not your fault. And that you say is about women and internalizing guilt and pressure. So tell me about that. I think, yes, it leads on from that to say that if something goes wrong with our children, for instance, if our children don't turn out the way we expected them to, or the fact that they they might be um, doing things which they didn't we didn't expect them to. I think there's a lot of pressure put on mothers, or motherhood is idolized in a way that it the society blames it ultimately on the women or on the yeah. mother. And we have to not internalize these pressures as women as mothers that these expectations that if our bodies do not work in a certain way, if our children don't turn out the way that in an idealized perfect way or if our homes don't look as clean or tidy as Mm -hmm. we expect them to be or or all those things are not just our fault it's not our role we conform so much to these feminine ideals of that we are responsible for the home the children and we internalize it and I know that even when I don't believe it sometimes when people are visiting I feel so guilty if the house is not clean (laughs) because I feel like it's a personal judgment on me as a homemaker as a wife as a mother even though it's not just my responsibility but I think I put that pressure more on myself than my even my husband even though we try and manage our house in such a gender equal way so I think it's these internalized expectations that we carry can create so much guilt and create so much pressure and constantly feeling ashamed of things not being mm. perfect. Yeah. And it even leads into whether you even want to be a mother or not, which I know is something exactly. you discuss in your book. It's called motherhood. But if you're looking for online, you'll see there's a brackets around the M. You know, is that something that's important too to look, you know, when we have those conversations to recognize there's no fault in that as well? Absolutely. And I think we create these um, norms for women from a very young age. And if you look through history, it has come through historical, it's a historical legacy that women's role was very much to the domestic sphere, that they are responsible for bearing children, that they're responsible for carrying the headline. It was evolutionary speaking, it was kind of a survival thing. But but as we our roles have changed and evolved through mm. through society and a society has changed, we're still fixed in those kind of normative ideals about the fact that ultimately it's not our choice but our destiny to become mothers. And when that happens, what happens is that we feel the pressure to conform to this, even if we don't want to. And I think there are these questions and judgments that are placed on women more if they don't want to become mothers or if they don't have children, then on men. And several research studies have shown, several personal stories have shown that as well. Women are asked again and again in family gatherings or in parties. So when are you having children? I don't think men are asked those questions because they're still given the freedom to to make these choices, that it's not their destiny to become fathers. So I think ultimately it has to be a woman's choice about their own body, about what they want. Um, even in the terms and language that we use, sometimes a child-free, or uh, it can center having children as the as the norm rather than the fact that okay, having children or not children is ultimately your choice about what you do want to do with your body. Some people can't have children, and that means that infertility or not being able to have children is also not seen 
is also stigmatized. You carry the guilt as if you're broken in your body, in your mind, and you're not being able to do what you're designed to do or supposed to do. So I think, yes, um, we need to change this narrative so urgently. Yeah. If you could tell me your third piece of advice, it also leads into that. Yes. So my third piece of choice uh, advice is that our bodies are choice. Yes, I think we often think we have a choice. And then especially in this kind of society where we live in, we mm. feel like we have this unprecedented kind of freedom that, to choose what we want. But I think choice is also limited by our context in society, by our social and cultural context, by our place and our privileges that we have. Not everybody has the same choices. Often we we choose things that we believe that we are expected to choose. So we are not ever free of these societal constraints or expectations. Often we internalize these beliefs that this is what's right for our bodies. This is what's right for our lives. This is what an idealized life would look like. And we choose those options, even if we don't want to choose that. For instance, even with motherhood, I think the ambivalence around motherhood is not given much space. Or even with motherhood, I think... There's a motherhood penalty we know in society that we are stigmatized for choosing careers over children or that women are penalized in in career paths if they have children or if they Mm. have families. And I think a lot of women are pressurized into not having children because they think that they can't manage it both, they can't have it both. So I think our societal structures have to be changed as well to to allow these freedom, these choices to occur without these expectations and pressures. Yeah, and I think these days, you know, we think, oh, okay, we've got, you know, reasonably liberal abortion laws in this country, you know, compared to other places. Yeah. And that our, your body, your choice is so linked to that area of debate that maybe we don't realise that actually there are still a lot of pressures, aren't there, on on what we do with our bodies and, and things that we can and can't do. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing a lot of pressure on abortion laws and women's bodies being monitored around the world so much. And it's really terrifying what's happening within some of the countries um, with the rise of this. But then they, you are also getting these messages, um, media bombarding us with messages like, oh, the birth rate is is really low at the moment or yeah. is falling at the moment. So we also absorb these messages as if, we are not doing our duty and we are choosing the wrong path. And yes, I think even if abortion laws are are uh, open in this country and we are free to choose, there are there are certain way that these messages are given to people, even by medical professionals, where people can be made to feel ashamed of these choices mm-hmm. that they are making. So, so the choices are still carry this weight of the expectations around. Absolutely. We'll be back with more from Pragya after this. We're still here with Pragya and we're about to go into your fourth piece of advice, which I feel like this one really (laughs) hits home for me. So tell us what that is. Yes, so my fourth piece of advice is I think for me as much as for anybody else because it is okay to be too much. I think (laughs) as a girl... um, as a woman, as I was growing up, I, there was always these kind of things that you're too emotional, too angry, too opinionated. And I was often told to kind of hide away, to make myself invisible, to not express my opinions, to not show my emotions, to not show my anger. 
because it was so stigmatized and it's like always like who's going to marry you if you're going to be so angry when i was growing up but i think um we know that women especially uh, are kind of um stigmatized for showing too much emotion mm-hmm. and we see that on social media as well in the moment you show your opinions you're constantly berated by somebody trying to tell you that oh calm down dear or something like that um it's it's almost like you're not allowed to take up too much space it's almost like you have to shrink yourself um and it's such a paradox because women are so visible certainly mm-hmm. in streets and roads you're harassed you're abused you're in society but then you're not allowed to take up space with your opinions with the with your emotions with the any yeah views and so i think it's okay to be too much i think there's nothing too much and i've had to tell myself this over time over yeah. over my lifetime that it's okay to be too much i don't really mind being too much i shouldn't mind being too much and i can take as much space as i want to yeah listen i doubt that you watch it but love island is on at the moment as we're recording <laughs> and there's a real thing with all the men in the villa repeatedly telling the women oh you're a bit fiery for me oh, this is this gosh. is the this is the what i think is the code word for this fiery so if women get upset you know yeah. they do terrible things to these women uh, and talk talk to them terribly and then they say oh, you're a bit fiery because you reacted to that you oh, know gosh. so it's you know we kind of laugh sometimes I think we feel like it's kind of a problem for maybe other cultures or for another mm-hmm. time that we told women to be quiet but it's very much still going on isn't it yes and I'm really and I haven't watched it I have to admit I'm sorry I do <laughs> I do kind of follow it on social media what's yeah. happening um but i'm really surprised to hear that but not surprised at the same time because mm-hmm. i think we still see that in schools in in meetings in in workplaces there's so much of this about girls having to be passive and quiet and absorbing and and men are the real go-getters or boy are the real go-getters and so much of this advice around workplace is also centered around what women can do differently so mm-hmm. recently i tweeted something about there was this piece of research which showed that in conferences women don't talk too much and so they should talk more or conference organizers should do more to encourage women to talk it's perhaps a societal problem that men are taking up too much space and they should be given the advice to actually not take up too much space and yeah. give equal space to women rather than it being a women's problem so if women young people see this things of love, love island about what's attractive to men not being fiery as mm-hmm. a code word or not being too outspoken then they will internalize it and they will believe that to be attractive to the opposite sex you have to be a certain way Yeah. It's like that whole debate isn't it whether we should as women kind of unfeminize our emails and shouldn't put kisses and should yeah. make them less flowery. I mean also maybe everyone else could adapt to a different way of talking, couldn't they? So Absolutely. And again yeah. it's kind of broken up into those binary things which I find very prog- problematic that there's a feminine way of communication yes. and there's a masculine way of communication and there's a masculine way of leadership and there's a feminine way of leadership. I think we have to break out of those binary kind of codes and ideals and what if I want to communicate with lots of exclamation marks because I feel excited yeah. about them and that's the way I communicate yeah. why should it be judged in a certain way why should it be seen to, as too much yeah 
Okay, I'm going to put it on my wall. It's okay to be too much. (laughs) Your fifth piece of advice is obviously linked to lots of the research you've done, which is to keep reflecting on and acknowledge your biases and privilege. So is this something that you try to do a lot of the time? And do you think it's something that we all continue to need to do? You know, you can't just do it once and think, oh, I've, I've checked that box. Yes, I think a lot of this de-biasing thing is become being tokenistic sometimes, yeah. especially with organizations. We did half an hour of unconscious bias training or we did a session with somebody and that, that box is take or it's quite performative. We've posted something on social media and that's so I'm de-biased myself or I've read certain books. But I think it has to be an ongoing, consistent process. And I, I have to do, I mean, as I said, we all carry biases because of the way we brought up, the, our experiences, our memories, our social, cultural context, the books we read, the people we follow on social media, those shape our ex- opinions and um, expressions. While writing Sway, I had to reflect on so many of my own biases mm-hmm. about the way I use language, the way words that we use the words that we don't use, the words that we stigmatize, and all those things. And language is creates so much bias. And I think it's not something that we should ignore about how language is constructed out of our societal biases, but it shapes bias as well. And so inclusivity is something that we have to aspire to, but it has to be seen a broad base rather than just racism or sexism. Again, we need to think about ableism in our society as well. We need to think about sexuality. We need to think outside the gender binary box as well, because that's, again, something we've all grown up with and we find very difficult to think outside the binary. So I think we need to really work on this every day. And there's nothing wrong with reflecting on our biases. That doesn't make us bad people that if we are biased, but we can put a barrier between holding some of the stereotypes and biases and activating them. And unless we reflect on it consistently, in an honest manner, mm-hmm. we can't put that barrier, we can't put that gap between holding a stereotype and activating a stereotype in certain decisions. Yeah, and society changes too, doesn't it? You know, mm-hmm. like 30 years, rightly or wrongly, you might not have had to consider your biases around, yeah. for instance, the trans debate and yeah. Um, you know, trans issues. And, you know, now it is something that people need to reflect on more, you know. I think the problem is that our debates become so polarised in our society, especially because of social media, that we find it very difficult to break out of the status quo, the the opinions that we hold. We almost feel like our brains is resistant to breaking out of these. Because yes, it's it's easier for our brains to just conform to the views that we hold. It takes more cognitive effort to break out of these and to shatter some of the, the beliefs that we have and to actually look at the world from a different angle. But I think empathy and and trying to metaphorically step into other people's shoes can mm-hmm. help us understand that actually there are multiple perspectives on the world. I might not have considered the other person's perspective because I'm so set in the way that I look. Sometimes people are threatened by the changes as well because that can change their status quo. They feel like if we include other people in this framework, then our status can be threatened. And Mm -hmm. I think that can also create problems and barriers in changing our views to to new debates or new discourses. Yeah, yeah. Your sixth piece of advice, I totally agree on this, is 
to define your own notion of success. Have you always been able to live like that or is that something you've come to later in life? I think I've always believed in that to a certain extent. Yes, there are times in your life when you feel like you're not living up to certain ideals of success and that you're not measuring up to that and then you can feel limited in yourself. But I think I've always, this is one thing I've always believed in from a young age that I define my notion of success. Mm -hmm. I define what I think is successful, what I want in life. There are times when, of course, you see other people you hear other people's success stories and everybody's human being and we all feel like, oh gosh, I should be doing more and Mm -hmm. I wish I was doing more and I wish I had been achieved that. But, But I think success means different things to different people and we have to acknowledge that and understand that my what my success is could be very different from somebody else's. And if we don't follow our path to our own ideal of success then we'll always be distracted by other people's measures of success and we'll always fall short of it. So it's no point doing that. Yeah. And, you know, also give yourself a break because if you're defining that notion of success, you know, how much easier is it going to be to achieve that and feel that you've done done the right thing? Yeah, and that's why sometimes we never feel like we've been successful. And I think we all can suffer from that. I've certainly at times felt like, oh, other people think I'm really successful, but actually I don't feel a success at all. And and sometimes you just keep looking at the other next stage of mm-hmm. what well, this is what I'm going to do next and never take a moment to rejoice in what we have actually achieved. And so I wrote this article a few months ago or something um, about how I always had this to-do list on the go and I was always looking ahead, mm-hmm. which meant that they, I never used to sit down and think, oh, actually, this is really good. And then I started writing a have done list on every Friday. Oh, right. And, and I idea. think, yeah, and it's not just big things, but even small things like I may ha- my children tried some new food or something. And, yeah. That's a battle. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think it's just little, little, tiny little things sometimes that we ignore and dismiss as mundane or we don't rejoice in them or we don't acknowledge them. And just uh, taking a moment every week to think of things we've done and we've achieved can be really helpful. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. So we always finish on a piece of worst advice, which is something that, you know, you've learned the hard way not to follow. So, and it helps other people. So we say it's a positive, really. Can you share what that would be for you? I could probably think of a few things, but I think most recent that comes to mind is as a writer, I have been uh, just so many pieces of advice that you're given. Um, people always used to tell me that if you want to be a serious writer, you need to have a strict routine, mm-hmm. that you have to write every day, sit down at your desk, have a fixed routine, ha- write a certain number of words every day. And I kept failing to do this because I have two small children. I was like, yeah. oh, how do I organize my life around their needs and still be able to have a strict routine? Am I failing to be a proper writer? Am I not achieving as much as I should? And then I, I, I just realized this is just not good advice because we have to, again, coming back to my other pieces of advice, we have to follow our body, our rhythm, our lifestyle and mm-hmm. think about what how we work out a rhythm of our life that fits our needs and other people's needs around us as well. 
And so I wrote an article recently for Literary Hub, if anybody's interested, about writing about motherhood while mothering during the pandemic, about <laughs> realizing that actually I tried to have a routine, but I just couldn't. And that means that I will always have to just think about, even if I have five minutes or 10 minutes to yeah. write, I just have to do that. Or the fact that write, reading, thinking is also part of the writing process. It's not just the number of words on the page. Yeah. No, I love that because everyone always has says that, don't they, for yeah. writing advice. Yeah. And I always think, oh, don't know if I fancy that. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. I've absolutely loved talking to you. I find lots of your advice super reassuring. So thank you very much for your time today. Uh, your book, Sway, is available in paperback now. Thank you so much for having me. And that was so, so interesting. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Dr. Pragya Agarwal. We are at the end of another Grazia Life Advice podcast. And as always, please, if you've enjoyed this episode, rate and review Grazia Life Advice wherever you get your podcasts. Or maybe take a screenshot and share on Instagram that you've got something out of listening today. Whatever works for you, it all helps and we're hugely grateful. Take care and see you next time. <laughs>